All right, so we're going to take a look tonight at the greatness of God. Uh, sometimes what you need to see something better is a different vantage point. Have you ever thought about that or seen a situation like that? Uh, I remember when I played sports in high school, one of the things our coaches would do is they would film parts of our practice or film parts of our game. And in our gym up at Mulberry High School, there was a press box way up above the the stands and they had a camera up there and would film as we played and then the coaches would analyze the film from above and sometimes they would share embarrassing bits with us of what we did wrong and sometimes they would share share encouraging bits but always to have a point of view above rather than at court level helped you to see those things that you didn't naturally see as you went through. Uh, you wouldn't sometimes see that your teammate was open when you were standing at court level, especially when you're my height. But when you saw it from above, you, you could see how much space there really was over there so that next time you would know you've got room to work with. Well, it's something like that that Isaiah is doing in this chapter. And this is one of my favorite chapters. In Isaiah, for sure, maybe even, it's definitely top five in the whole Bible for me. It's beautiful. Uh, it's where Isaiah is trying to convince Israel that to see the vastness of the greatness of God from a high vantage point is going to be actually the greatest medicine to their soul that they could possibly ever seek out. Um, Israel, after all, has many wounds that need to be tended to. I don't know if you know a lot about Isaiah's time in history, but he's writing right before the northern tribes are going to be completely destroyed. And that was a judgment for their sins when the Assyrians would come to destroy them in about 727 B.C. And then he was writing a couple hundred years before the two or three southern tribes were also carried into exile in 586 B.C. Also because of their sins. And so he's teaching a people who is getting ready to go into many, actually centuries of humiliation... And he says, the thing you need more than anything to help you with your, your wounds is not that God might give you a quick fix in your circumstances, but that he might give you a vision of his greatness so that you can see your circumstances from his angle, from his point of view. The greatness of God contains a bomb for every sore, Charles Spurgeon says. And there could be no greater thing for us also to consider the greatness of God tonight, no matter what problem it is in our lives that we need to apply it to. And all of us will have different areas where we need to apply it. I'll try to help you with that as we get to the end. So if you'll look at your bulletin, there are three things that we want to look at as we digest this wonderful piece of uh, prophetic poetry. Uh, first of all, we're going to see the good news of God why uh, God's greatness is, its, is itself the good news of the gospel. Uh, and then secondly, we're going to look more detail at that greatness itself, why, what makes God so great, greater than anything else. And then finally, the gain of God. How do we apply this to various situations in our lives? All right, so first of all, let's think about God as the good news. Uh, have you all seen uh, pictures uh, of the hostages being released over in uh, Gaza, from Gaza, in the news the past few days. Uh, it's been a very encouraging development in the, the war over there, as there's been a ceasefire and Hamas is, and also Israel are both releasing prisoners of war. 
Hamas is releasing those innocent hostages that were taken hostage on the first day, October, was it the 7th? October the 7th, so long ago. Well, the pictures are really just amazing. These, in some cases, kids that had been captured and taken hostages running towards their parents and grandparents and embracing them. Now, let me ask you this. If you're, put yourself, if you can, in their position. If your family member had been taken hostage, or if you had been taken hostage, and it was time for your release, which would be more comforting? The announcement that your release is coming, or the sight of the face of the one that you love that you've been separated from? B. All right, yes. In fact, probably if, if you've been in, in a hostage for a long time, announcements kind of wear thin, don't they? I mean, you've been told it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen, you're going to be released, you're going to be released, and you stop believing the announcement. But the moment you see that person that you have longed for so much is the moment your salvation becomes vivid and becomes believable. Well, look at verses 9 through 11. This is exactly what Isaiah says about our salvation in Christ. He says to Israel, go up to a high mountain and become a herald of the good news. Go tell it on a mountain, Israel. Israel, of course, was picked by God to be God's people prior to the coming of Christ. From them, Christ would come, and they were to be the first heralds of the salvation that Christ would win. In fact, that did happen as all the apostles were native sons of Israel, and they went out into the world and were the first missionaries. They got up on a mountain, and they proclaimed the good news everywhere. Now, I want you to notice at the end of verse 9, what is the message that they are to proclaim. What is the good news? Behold your God. Maybe this will help you. Maybe this might even challenge you a little bit in your understanding of the gospel. Um, this is similar to what we talked about this morning with the ark. Uh, the gospel, it, yes, it's about benefits that come to you from God. But bigger than all of that, it's about God himself coming to you. God himself being with you and you being restored to him. The greatest thing about the gospel, the good news in the good news, is that God himself has come to live with his people in covenant relationship. In friendship with his people, even though they had been separated from him for such a long time. Behold your God. Behold, look and see your God before you. Now, verses 10 and 11 describe a little bit about what they will see when they see God. And that this is a twofold picture that they will see of God. On the, on the one hand, in verse 10, they're going to see a God of perfect justice. He is the judge of all the earth and he judges justly. Look at what it says. Behold, the Lord comes with might. And his arm rules for him. His reward is with him. That is, he will reward all the good that has ever been done for his sake. And his recompense is before him. He'll pay back any of the violations or the wrong that has been done against him. Outside of faith, God will judge the world with perfect equity. Now, why might that be 
good news to Israel. Well, they've been, for many years now, filling the land with the blood of violence. Isaiah said that earlier in the book. Israel had not been keeping God's commandments, and from God's perspective, the streets of Jerusalem ran with the blood of the innocent. They neglected God. Sometimes they gave God lip service. You know, it's from Isaiah that you get that phrase, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Sometimes Israel did give the outward show of worship, but inwardly they were fully separated from the Lord because they were intent on living life their way. And this is good news, that God will show up. And when you see God coming, he's going to come to set right all the things that have been made wrong by the sin of people. And I hope that for all of us, that's something that you go to bed at night thinking about. It ought to help you sleep at night to know that any of the wrong that fills this world will one day be righted by the Lord when he comes in his fullness. Um, I think it was, was it C.S. Lewis or J.R.R. Tolkien who said that all the sad things will come untrue? Which one was that? I'm ashamed that I don't remember. Tolkien, okay, yeah, probably true. All the sad things will come untrue one day. And that's a good way to say it. The Lord will come with might. His arm will rule for him. His reward and his recompense will be with him. But then secondly, look at verse 11. The, the second part of this twofold picture is that God is going to come with tender mercy. Okay, God is not just a judge, merely. God is a tender shepherd. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. And then in one of the greatest pictures that you get anywhere in the Bible, he will carry the lambs in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. What a picture of God, right? This is, the, this is probably the greatest, one of the greatest of all the portraits of God that you see in the Bible. The great judge who takes the lambs up, and he doesn't hold them at a distance. He doesn't just command them with his voice. He doesn't just use his stick to beat them into submission. He grabs the lambs and holds them close. Uh, maybe you've seen one of those old paintings of the Good Shepherd. This was a, actually a very common theme for early Christian artists. Uh, they, they would draw a shepherd with a lamb in the arm. Sometimes the lamb would be laid over the shoulder. And that was meant to be a reflection of what this verse and other verses in the Bible were saying about God. He's tender in the way that he cares for each and every one. And so you can see how the good news, the gospel, is not merely God's going to do a bunch of good things for you. The gospel is God is going to be with you. God is going to be right there with you, judging on your behalf and picking you up as a shepherd might pick up a lamb who is hurting and wounded and who needs attention and healing. The, co the commentator um, Oswalt, his last name is Oswalt, he writes on the book of Isaiah. He says this, I love it. Salvation is neither more nor less than the divine presence. Salvation is the divine presence, God's presence. God does not save his people with programs sent from afar. Y'all ready for Christmas yet? I'm about to start preaching Christmas here. 
God does not save his people with programs sent from afar. Neither does he save them with theological concepts coolly administered from on high. He comes. This was the good news then in Isaiah's day, and it still is today with only this difference. Today we can tell people he has come rather than just he will come. Isn't that good? Salvation is the sight of God. The just judge, the tender shepherd coming to us. How beautiful is that sight to you? Behold your God. This is what Spurgeon meant when he said, there is a bomb for every sore in this. There's a bomb for every sore. Uh, I think you could stare at Isaiah 40 every day for the rest of your life and not finish nourishing your soul with the God who judges and who carries close to his heart his very dear people. All right. But secondly, let's look at the greatness of this God. This is the fun section in the middle, verses 12 to 26, where Isaiah just starts going crazy with comparisons. Really, instead of comparisons, you should call it contrasts. He is contrasting God with everything else. To get into the heart of the people of Israel, this God whom you see, who is coming to you, is just simply not comparable with anything you should stop trying to compare God with anything in the world. And so if you, just to kind of organize it for you, I'm going to, I broke it up into a few sections. Uh, first of all, he compares God with the heavens and the earth that he made. Then he compares God with human beings and all of their supposed wisdom. Then he compares God with the rulers of men on earth. And then finally, he compares God with outer space. All right, let me just quickly walk through these with you. I think it'll be nourishing to you just to look at these in, in carefully. First of all, God is bigger and greater than the heavens and the earth that he made, which is amazing because look at what it says in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? All right, uh, here's a earth science pop quiz. How much of the earth is water? How much? 70. 70. Thank you, Gabriel. That is perfect. Uh, that's a man fresh out of earth science right there. <laughs> 70% water. Do you know the deepest point in the ocean of the world? How deep is it? Any guesses? There you go. 36,000, give or take a little bit. Right? That's pretty deep. Wouldn't you say? Feet deep, yes. 36,000 feet deep. Wow. And here it's saying that that is of such small, what's such small potatoes to God that he could hold all the water of the world right in the hollow part of his hand. Look at your hand. Cup it. The little part that you could hold water in, that's the hollow of your hand. Imagine the world's oceans and all the water in every cloud fitting there. This is just a little picture to get you to see the immensity of God. Very encouraging. It says also that the heavens themselves, and here he means the, the sky that we can see from earth. So the, the clouds and the, the blue sky and the sun. He can measure that with a span of his hand. 
Now, there are, some, there are some people that have much bigger hand spans than me, but there aren't any person, there is not any person who could measure heaven by a hand breadth. But God can. Also, the earth itself is a bunch of dust to him. He enclosed the dust, dust of the earth in a measure, and he, he's able to take the mountains of the world and weigh them in scales, and the hills he puts in, in the balance. Think of all the mountains in the world. What's the tallest mountain? Thank you. Yes, Mount Everest. Um, it's huge. It's, well, it's about as tall as the deepest ocean is deep. And God simply can take a mountain and just place it on a scale just to see how much it weighs. And when he weighs it, eh, just a little dust. Just a little dust. The God who made the world. Sometimes we are in such a tizzy. That's a, the, that's a theological term, by the way, a tizzy. About the smallest things in our lives. And they, get, they overwhelm us. And I think a lot of times it's because we have a greatness of God deficiency. And we need to take a little vitamin from Isaiah 40 to make up the deficiency. Here is a God who does all these things with just a hand. Okay, then he moves on in verse 13 to comparing God to humans and all of their wisdom. Think of the collected wisdom of the human race. Which, well, you know, it's not insignificant. Um, you know, we're not, we're not great, but we certainly have achieved some things on this earth that aren't, that aren't, uh, aren't small in every case. We've, we've advanced ourselves in lots of ways by God's help. But notice what he says. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? And, and actually, instead of measured, I like better, who has directed God's spirit? What man shows him his counsel? Which man did God consult? And which man made God understand? Who taught God the path to justice? When did God call together a bunch of counselors and say, teach me about justice? At what point did God go to school and learn his knowledge or the way of understanding? These are all rhetorical questions, by the way, which means the implied answer is what in this case? Nobody did this. God never had a class in which he learned things, and God never needed a counselor to guide him through his decisions. In fact, human wisdom, you know, insofar as it has done good things, really is derivative of him rather than the other way around. Okay, our wisdom is derived from him, not his from ours. God needs no counselor. He needs no teacher. He's far greater than humans in their wisdom. Well, somebody says, all right, well, what about nations? Okay, God might be bigger than individual humans, but what about humans when we band together? The power of the people. The fatherland. Look at what it says. Behold, the nations, verse 15, are like a drop from a bucket. I love that. He doesn't just say they're like water in a bucket. That would have been small enough. But he says they're a drop from the bucket. A thimble's worth of water. Remember, again, he's talking about nations, not just talking about individuals. He's talking about groups, millions of people banded together. 
He accounts them as dust on the scales. Have you ever, well, a lot of times we step on the scale and don't like what it says. But at no time have we thought, man, the problem is that this scale's too dusty. If I just dust off the scale and get back on it, it'll say what I want it to say. Um, no, dust doesn't do anything to the scale, right? It, it makes no difference in what the scale reads. And so that's what it's saying here, that, that the nations to God are like nothing to him. In verse 17, it says they are less than nothing and complete emptiness. Even Lebanon with all of its trees, and Lebanon is known even today by its cedar trees. It's on its flag. It's a cedar tree. Even all the trees would not be enough fuel for God. And all the animals that run around in the great forests of Lebanon are not enough for a burnt offering. God is bigger than all of it. Are you amazed yet? And then he says, all right, let's, let's look at a different uh, example. Uh, what about the rulers of nations? All right, so yeah, God's bigger than nations, but there have been some noble, great, awesome men and women in our history. Um, who are the greatest of world leaders? Name some. Alexander the Great, right? The Pharaohs, Napoleon. We can name some of our own. George Washington. Who else you got? Constantine. Constantine. These are big names. Even King David, whom we read about this morning. You can name lots of big names. But notice what he says. Verse 22. It is God who sits above the circle of the earth. And to God, its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Notice when it says its inhabitants, he doesn't say, well, that's the people, but the rulers are bigger. This is the way humans think. We think there's the little people, there's the ordinary average Joe, and then there's the, the, the real important VIPs. That's the way we rank each other. To God, it doesn't matter. Alexander Great is a grasshopper like you and like me before the Lord. He, he judges everybody exactly the same regardless of their standing among men. This is a God who, it says, stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent for people to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. The reason I had you name all those people, Alexander the Great and so forth, where are they at right now? Well, their souls are either in heaven or hell. Their bodies, which once were so revered, where are they? Dust. Who knows where? Actually, the same way we will become one day. No difference between Alexander the Great and us. To God, Comparatively, it's, it's as if it's nothing. God does not even give special treatment or special uh, value to the rulers of this world. 
And then finally, the one to crown them all, outer space itself. Now, I'm using the word outer space. That's a modern word. It's not one that the Bible writer would have used, but notice what he says in verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. What are these? Stars, planets, all the things in outer space. God created them. He brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And, he is, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Think of the vast amount of stars they are. Think of the various constellations that they're in. And think of the regularity with which they pass by. I mean, literally, someone could tell you what the sky looked like in 700 B.C., at any given place in the world because we it's so regular and this passage is saying that is because God treats the stars like another flock of sheep that he puts in the places that he wants them to be isn't that cool this whole picture is amazing it's a it's a a a daily dose of the greatness of God to inoculate you against the fears, worries, doubts, and all the other things that might cause your heart and mind to swirl. It's learning how to take whatever it is that bothers you and contrast it with the great God who made you and who loves you in his son, Jesus Christ. And when that happens, as Jesus teaches us, you should not worry. You won't worry. You won't be anxious Because you know you have a heavenly father who cares for you, even the smallest things in your life, the hairs of your head. Uh, Just like he counts the sparrows, he counts the hairs of our head. And therefore, we can trust everything we have to him. Also, therefore, we should not go looking for things that only he can give us from other places. And so you'll notice twice he says, In verse 18, and then in verse 25, he says, who are you going to compare me to? Who is it that's going to match me in my greatness? Is it going to be an idol? Well, think about that for a minute. The idol you yourself have to cast. You use gold and silver, and if you're too poor to to afford gold and silver, you'll choose wood, and you'll try to choose the best wood, the ones that won't rot, the pressure-treated ones. How crazy to try to replace God with something that your own hands can make. And then the same in verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Holy meaning incomparable, irreplaceable. No one is like me. Inviting the people back from their idolatry to a meditation on the aspects of God's greatness. So that they can, be, can live their lives in an awareness of who it is that's holding them. Of who it is that's watching out for them. And who it is that loves them in the covenant of grace. So think about your life real quick. Which of these aspects of God's greatness do you most need to meditate on? Some of us might say, well, I'm going to just stick with verse 9. I just need to remember that beholding my God is the greatest thing. And I just need to sit on that for a while until I really get it. 
Uh, others of us might like verse 11. Uh, we might, for example, feel like we're not cared for, maybe forgotten, abandoned, an afterthought to people. This is a good reminder. The Lord God holds you in his bosom. For others of us, uh, we might uh, have a tendency to feel like we're in control of things, like we're somebody. Well, it's good to remember that God is the one who brings down princes, who blows on them, and they become like so much stubble blown by the wind. You know, you pick it. There's something in here that will minister a vitamin to counteract your lack of faith and my lack of faith. Listen to what uh, one other author says. He says, The troubles of this world will not have exhausted his supply of power, goodness, or justice. God is eternally with us with infinite resources. Those with eyes of faith are able to see that God always has their back, accompanying them through all of life's challenges with his great might. The enemies of our souls are meddling with one who is far above their match. Pretty encouraging. Isaiah says, this is the gospel I want you to go preach. God is great. No one compares. Now last, lastly, look at the gain of God, which is found in verses 27 to 31. And this will help you apply it to whatever situation you have. And there may be many in this room. And you know what they are, but you can... Kind of follow me here, and that'll help you apply all this. Uh, notice how Isaiah first begins by calling people out for living as if God were not real or as if God were not great. Verse 27, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Uh, somebody maybe paraphrase that question. There you go. That, that's one way to put it. Yep. Why am I not getting my way? Notice how he says my right is disregarded. That, that's I'm not getting what I think I deserve or what I think I ought to have. Anybody ever think that way? Maybe just all the time. Daily. Does the Lord not see? Does he not pay attention? Is he not watching? I mean, why would he let this, why is he letting this happen? And notice how Isaiah says, why are you saying these things? What do you think the significance of that is? Why does he say, why do you say? Rather than saying, what are you saying? Or how are you saying this? Why does he say, why do you say these things? What's he trying to get him to do, Clint? He's basically accusing God of injustice. You're blaming him. You're saying, yeah. He either can't do it, won't do it. And so the why question is getting at how, well, how unjust it is to, to treat God as if he's unjust, right? How, how absolutely backwards it is. Like, it's almost like the question of why in the world, has anybody ever said, why in the world did you do that? That type of question. That's what God is sending Isaiah with. Why in the world would you ever think that your way is hidden from God? I mean, nothing's hidden from God. He sits above the circle of the earth. 
Why in the world would you think that your right is being disregarded by God? He holds you in his bosom. Verse 28, have you not known and have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? The issue with the Israelites is an issue of knowing and an issue of hearing. Why were they speaking so ill of God? Because they did not know what they had the opportunity to know. And no, by the way, there is personal no. Uh, they did not have an intimate acquaintance with what they should have had an intimate acquaintance with. And they did not hear. And they're not just meaning the sound waves did not tickle their eardrums, but meaning they did not take to heart those things that they were told about God, that they were not processing those things that God had said to them. And therefore, they were growing weary and faint in their way. Because things were difficult, they were growing weary because God's understanding was unsearchable to them. Therefore, they concluded that there must not be any rhyme or reason or goodness in God's way. This goes back to what uh, William Cooper, the hymn writer, said, We cannot judge God by feeble sense. Don't judge God by your own judgment because God it cannot be put in your box or in mine. None of us can fathom all the various purposes and ways that God has in play. But what we can know is God is great, matchlessly so. God is a just manager of the world. And God is a tender shepherd caring for his people, especially the weak and the young holding them even in his bosom. If we know that, that is not just know it, but know it, not just be able to say it, but really embrace it. If we hear about it, not just have it come into one ear and out the other, but really take it to heart, then what will we do? We will learn how to wait for the Lord. Verse 29, he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Okay, what they're saying in verses 27 and 28 is the opposite of waiting on God. They're saying, God is disregarding me, and so I am disregarding God. They're failing to wait. In verse 30, it says, verse 31, it says, If you wait on the Lord... That's when you'll find the strength that's failing renewed. And here's why you can wait on the Lord. All the evidence that I've just brought before you of how great God is comparatively to everything else in the universe. Therefore, he's worth waiting on and he will never disappoint you when you wait on him. Have you ever gotten to the end of the, of the month, if you get paid by the month and you're starting to run out of funds and it's tense and you're worried and you immediately go to the thought, how many days until the next payday? One, two, three, okay, just four days. And then the relief comes. Anybody ever there? I hope you're not living there, but we, we've all been there. 
It's kind of like that. Now, if you were at the end of the month and you knew the next month you weren't going to get paid, that'd be a whole lot different, wouldn't it? The feeling would be so different. But if you know, all right, it's going to be four days, so we're going to have ramen for four days. But in four days, we go shopping and we get something better. You know that there's a certainty of something coming that begins to pick up a fainting heart, even when it comes to things like paychecks. Here what it's saying is, if God is really as great as it says he is, that means he himself has no faintness in him. He has no weariness. God never gets tired. He never runs out of energy. He never has to go to sleep. He never has to blink his eyes. So nothing can, be, nothing can ever be hidden from his sight. If that's true, then when you wait on God, you can always know that what you're waiting on will, in fact, arrive. You know, if you're waiting on God, behold your God, that will, in fact, arrive for you. It's as sure and even surer than the paycheck that you're waiting on at the end of the month. Even surer than that. In fact, the Bible says it's surer than the sun rising and the sun setting. It's one of my my favorite uh, passages besides this one is where God says, look up at the sky. If I could ever break my covenant with the sun and it doesn't come up tomorrow because I broke my covenant with it, therefore I I will break my covenant with you, O Israel, O people of mine. Wow. What a thing. We can wait on God knowing that God will show up at his appointed time. Just as sure as the sunrise and just as sure as the sun set. Now, we'll talk next week because we're going to look at a different attribute of God next week. But we'll have an opportunity when we look at that to talk about maybe some of the ways that we can wait on God. We don't have time tonight to go through them in detail. Um, But maybe what I'll do actually right now is list them. You want me to list them? And you can write them down. And I don't have time to say anything about them, so I'm just going to list them. And uh, you can't, um, yeah, hopefully you, you'll keep up with me. If not, I can send you a picture of this. Uh, here's how you wait on God. First of all, hold fast to hope in all circumstances. All right. I'm resisting the temptation to say more. Second, <clears throat> it's really hard for me. <laughs> Second, Obey his word no matter the temptations. Third, when you pray, really work on praying according to his will. Fourth, when adversity strikes, work, take that as as from God for you to work on patience. Be patient under trials. Work on that. Fifth, when prosperity comes, make sure you give thanks from the heart. I will make a case next week as we talk about the next attribute that those five things are the basic building blocks of waiting on the Lord because of how great he is. All right, I got to close.